As far back as I could remember, I always wanted to be a well, the owner of a comic book store. Trust me, true believer. Well, Jagger and me, we had a running contest to see who had the most comic books in the world. Whatever, my skate was um, comic books. Net profit to me, negative $59. I love the comics because of the brightness displayed by the fellows who drew them. They remained remain with me always, and when comic books first came into being, it drew me to them. Tales from the Comic Shop. Hey, welcome to Tales from the Comic Shop. I'm your host, Joe, and today I'm joined by Eddie and Roger, as always. And also, we are lucky enough to be joined by Doug Wagner and Hoyt Silva, who have a new book there promoting Yumi Spy, Fatal, Batty Royale. How are you guys doing? I'm doing, doing all right. Yeah. Welcome, gentlemen. Eddie, Roger. We're good. Yeah, man. I'm ready to go. All right. Let's do this. So, we're going to go a little out. We're going to change things up here a little bit, and we're going to do a uh, plug because uh, I feel this is something that's kind of important. I want to talk about a fundraiser that my friends over at artistchoice.com and Clan McDonald Comics are holding for Linda Blair WorldHeart.org. Uh, LBWH is a unique safe haven for animals that provides lifelong care for the animals it rescues. For more info about their mission, head over to Linda Blair WorldHeart.org. And starting February the 28th, the Clan McDonald Facebook page will be hosting a fundraiser featuring featuring sketch op auctions of full body 11 by 17 pencil sketches of characters of the auction winners choices. Talent includes Ivan Reyes, George Perez, Walt Simonson, Mark Texera, Mark Bagley, and Scott Hanna as a team, Ron Lim, Brett Bergen, and Norm Ratman as a team, Dan Jurgens and Norm Ratman, Bob Layton, JRJR, David Finch, and many more. So head over to their Facebook page at Klein McDonald's Comics on Facebook to participate in the auctions and check out the charity Linda Blair WorldHeart.org website to find more about this. Sorry, that was a mouthful, guys. Thanks for bearing <laughs> with me. Let's hop into the news. I want to talk about something that I that that uh, I don't know about uh, Hoyt and Doug, but Roger and Eddie aren't going to care about this at all. But Paramount <laughs> I, I gave, definitely don't. Paramount gave Avatar: The Last Airbender their own studio this week. That happened on Wednesday, and as a huge fan of that show, I could not be happier. Um, they announced a feature film is the first project coming out of there, and then they will be continuing with more shows. Um, if you've been following the comics, the comics are just a great continuation. They've kind of done the Harry Potter thing with that series where they've uh, they've kind of grown the series with their fans. So as they've gone along, it's kind of aged up. And um, it's just a masterclass in world building. Um, the Avatar world is so flushed out and fully realized. It's uh, It's just a great thing to jump into. And we're very um, happy. So I'm for really you, happy Joe. about that. Yes, we're yeah, very I'm, happy. I'm for very you. happy about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Oblivion Avatar's song. Sorry. Avatar is dope. So I'm a fan that they're getting back oh, yeah. together and doing. Oh that. yeah. Like, I'm, I'm in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So All right. We'll awesome. Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, I, I was kind of rushing through that because Eddie and Roger were adamant that it's not important. 
Well, I, I was adamant that I don't care. I just I didn't say it wasn't important. Well, I just here's the thing for me at my age, I think it's just something that came about and was big when I was already too old for that kind of thing, specifically. Um, well, I mean, so here's the funny thing about Avatar is it dropped. I think it was the first series ran from 2005 to 2008. So I was like 25 then. Okay. But my little cousin, um, my cousin had some stuff go on and I ended up taking care of her son a lot for a summer. And um, he just was a huge fan of it. And he got me sucked into this little Nickelodeon kids show. And um, now he's in his mid twenties and he doesn't care, but I still love it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. See, I think at that particular time it was big like that. I didn't have any kids in the family anywhere that were watching it. I was never exposed to it. So I think it's just something that just completely passed me by. So I have no, I have to admit that I have, I have actively avoided anime in my entire <laughs> life because I had, no, no, there's a reason for this. And it's not that I'm against anime. There's a reason for this. So I had like this, kind of family friend that when it came down for a summer that I had to like spend the entire summer with who was ridiculously obsessed with Dragon Ball. But he was one of those people that was like, I have to show you this, but I'm not going to show you in the order it's supposed to be shown to you. I'm going to like show you my favorite episodes first and then try to explain what happens between them. Oh. And I ended up watching out. And then he, and then I told him like, I'm not into this. And then he went and rented a bunch of anime and I'm fully aware it was all just his garbage taste. But I was like, look, I have so many other things that I'm really into that I know I'll never experience all the things I know I enjoy in. So like, while I'm sure there's anime I would like, I'm not going to weed through all the stuff I wouldn't fight to in order to find out when I have so many <laughs> other like video games and comic books that I know I'm going to love that I already don't have time for. So I've just made it a point not to pursue that. See, I think the problem is you become a certain age and you're like, nah, I don't want any new stuff. I just want my stuff. <laughs> Just like you reach a certain age and you're like, I don't want to meet any more people. I don't want any more friends. This is it. This is enough. <laughs> this is right, here. right here. Yeah. Right here. Well, no, I mean, there was a long time that that series should have died. I mean, it should be dead. That M. Night Shyamalan movie was oh. terrible. Mm. And it, it was awful. Yeah. It, 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 and like, so everyone who like I tried to see, bring that's in. That's the only thing that makes me interested is wanting to see how bad that movie is. That, that it's I actually am so bad. In. It's not, it's, it's not so as bad. bad if you would have actually watched it. It's a bad movie, but if you watch the show, it's even worse. You know, because no, it's like, like that yeah. lack of potential. It's like, dude, there's so much potential here. Like, what did you do with that? And he focuses on all the wrong stuff. But like, I, I, it's just like, it's like I tried to bring some friends in on the show and that was the thing they saw first. And that just, I mean, it literally killed any chance of that <laughs> ever happening. <laughs> it's so bad. Um, and like, yeah, no, it really could have. And um, I mean, the second series, Legend of Korra, the last two seasons didn't run on Nickelodeon. It ran the first two seasons on Nickelodeon and it didn't have enough fan base. They, they took it to the internet and they showed the last two seasons online. And um, or maybe it was the last season and a half. Like they cut, they stopped halfway through the third season, I think. And that's, I mean, it's unfortunate because that was the, the third season was the one with Henry Rollins as the bad guy. And that was one of the best episodes or seasons of TV, just period for any show. Um, but anyways. And that that's yeah. what you use to try to get me to watch it. I remember. Right. Yeah. yeah that's, I always that's, that's, <laughs> Henry Rollins plug. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, um, yeah, no. So what happened was, is they released the shows on Netflix and um, they dominated the ratings for a month. Like uh, 
the first two weeks of the month, the number one show was Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah, and like the second the two weeks. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like right at the pandemic popped off, like and everybody got locked down. Like that was the show that came out on on Netflix or whatever, like that week almost, I think, right? And it, that's why it, like, it popped it off. It dominated the nothing. ratings for a yeah, month. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then Cora came out and that was one for about two weeks on there. And so Paramount said, oh, we have some, we have a product just sitting here. And I mean, I think maybe the Dragon Prince's success also helps, which Roger, that's a fantasy show. It's not an anime, but it's done by the same guys and it's incredible. It's on Netflix. Definitely worth checking out. Maybe um, I'll do it when I get need something to watch with my kids once I'm done with Doctor Who. Yeah, that, that well, you'll never be done with Doctor Who. There's like 50 <laughs> seasons. <but. laughs> That's a show that I don't start as well. Same, same as you with the anime. I don't mess See, with Doctor I, Who like that because I can't. I, I nope, that. I'm all right. I'm all right, dude. I, I did that Too for a while seasons. and then I started it and now I'm, now I'm done. Yeah, right See, I wouldn't get into it. So I can't because that's I know there's like too much there for me to like swim In fairness, through. I only watched I'm, – I'm one of those lame ones who only watched the new Doctor. I haven't watched any of the old stuff. <laughs> awesome all right guys so moving along um oblivion song the robert kirkman book they announced that they're down to their final six issues i don't know if you guys have been reading it but it got really really good like it started out kind of rough the first 12 issues i was gonna give up on it when they took their first hiatus but i forgot to take it off my pool so i kept reading it when it came back out <laughs> and the second 12 is really good and um, so I'm, I'm a little Kirkman bit upset about that. has a tendency to do that. Kirkman has a tendency yeah. to kind of do that in general. I've noticed he starts slow a lot. Cause yeah. if you go it back and read those, like the first trade or two of walking dead compared to later on, it's actually not that good. I mean, it's not bad, but he got much better as it went along. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't want to say oblivion song was bad it, or slow, but it, was bad and slow. <laughs> um, <laughs> I tried to read Outcast, so I know what you mean. All right. And then the final news I want to touch on that Roger and Eddie aren't going to care about at all is uh, James Gunn and Margot Robbie have been talking about the fact that they are planning a Harley sequel together that James Gunn is going to direct. So oh, dude, not I don't care about it because anything, anything James Gunn does, I'm in. Like It doesn't matter <laughs> right. what it is. If James Gunn's doing it, I'm in something Roger and Eddie are interested in is the state of the comic market. And if you've been paying attention, it's gone bonkers the last three or, I mean the last couple of days, but the last really three <laughs> yeah. months, it's the been, last X yeah. amount of time. It's been for a while. Oh, and God, it's just yeah. been like, I keep thinking it's going to be done and then it just keeps getting crazier. Uh, I would say, I don't know about for you, Roger, but I would say it started around uh, March, April, April, May around there. Yeah. I think that's that's when I first started to see the upward pressure. I wouldn't yeah. necessarily say it went nuts at that point, but I definitely started seeing the upward pressure no, around that it's, point. It's definitely where and it then started to it go. It just up. went from there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause when we were locked down and we were closed, we were selling stuff online um that I didn't think we, you know, would ever sell. But we were just selling it just like like nuts. And then you started seeing all the prices started going up and up and up on key issues. So yeah, it's definitely been probably, it's going to be like getting close to almost a year now, seven, eight, nine months around there. Well, what was, in, 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 you guys think that's that a lot to do with like the, obviously the pandemic and people just being locked down and looking for stuff to read or 
Partially. sitting with their collections. Yeah, and we had talked had about that. Holes and stuff. Yeah, we talked yeah. about that on a previous one where we think that there's there were a lot of people that were still working even though places were closed and they now had more disposable income. Right. And I think right. that they were putting well, a lot of them received stimulus money and raises as well. Mm-hmm. So Right. Yeah, not only did the their expenses go down, but their income went up. Right. Right. True. That's very true. Um, and definitely so I, comics I definitely are a huge cue for boredom. So for sure. I like, think that started it. I do think some of what's happening right now specifically and why comics are going so crazy is bleed over from the card markets because the card markets, as much as we saw like upticks in comics, the card markets went absolutely bonkers. Like really? The like card it, markets too? Oh, <laughs> oh wow. dude. Like yeah. sports cards and Pokemon cards, both have gone on like so you know last year at this time i was selling base set charizards for about 65 dollars from mm-hmm. the from the first pokemon set yeah right now i'm watching them go for four to five hundred that is right. quite the yeah it's, it's, it's a <laughs> huge leap yeah and it's yeah. not just obviously the older cards but any newer product period we would get in um the new booster sets uh, and they were literally gone as soon as we Dang, got. So they came in the shop. Pokemon's popping again, huh? Yeah, oh God, yeah. Dang. Yeah. yeah oh, crazy. to the point where to the point where our allocations on the last set in my store, um, we got cut ninety three percent of our order. Yeah, we so only did got we. fulfilled seven percent of what we ordered. Wow. Yeah, we got cut as well. That's and yeah. um, I mean, it's to the point where the combination of supply chain issues and demand increase. You have both mm-hmm. it hits mm-hmm. from both ends, and you start to have just huge that bottleneck. And I think yeah. that's that trickles into the vintage market. And then I think also, you know, for Pokemon specifically, there was some weird stuff that happened with some um, some online and some influencers. I know the rapper Logic spent like a quarter million dollars on a Pokemon card, and it got a ton of um coverage which then gets people digging through their closet remembering pokemon i can't tell you many people oh i saw this article and i'm coming in to see if any of my pokemon cards are worth money and then while they're there they look at our stuff and decide to trade instead of buy and sell you know because they (laughs) they think oh these are really cool i remember how cool these were right and um, i want them again and they start picking up new stuff and and so i think it did just bring the social consciousness back a lot more and people are bored collecting is Mm -hmm. fun and yeah it's easy to get sucked down ebay rabbit holes we've all done it you know so um, yeah. so I think that has to do a lot with it. And then in sports cards, it's been even, it's been even crazier. I mean, there are cards that, you know, I saw that we were selling eight or $900 last year, go for literally 20,000 this year, like that type of increase. Wow. Um, and who and, would have thought that do, the, uh, card that came in the, um, the bag with X force number one would be going so, for so much so money that's actually right one of the. <laughs> that's one of those specific ones I wanted to touch on was that Deadpool card. Have you guys seen what that's? Oh, that no. I remember fiasco? the card. I remember the card. I actually worked at a shop when that popped off. But I so didn't. so yeah. If you remember right, in X Force One, they came um, polybagged, yeah. mm-hmm. and the Deadpool was one of the card possibilities you could get. There was like I think four or five of them. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, about what was it November ish. You started to see these cards. They they, they had very few, and that people started to realize that like all these old Marvel cards were really rare in a high grade. And so when you started to get these PSA tens that would pop up, all of a sudden they started going for just a lot more than you'd expect. And you had like the Deadpool card in in a ten go for literally thousands of dollars. Yep. I think tens have gone for as high as two or three thousand dollars for a single ten wow, grade. I gotta card. dig through my Marvel my um, Marvel cards now too. I got a huge right. Yeah, right. And then book that, of those things somewhere in a closet. Well, people started realizing with the original couple Marvel series from the early nineties that there was very few pot graded in a high grade. There was real low population in these ten grades. So you started seeing 
these cards go for 900 to 1,000 a piece, which obviously just creates this pressure that drives up the rest. So all of a sudden, people are buying X-Force 1 if it has the Deadpool card. You know, it's still a dollar book if it doesn't. But if it has a Deadpool card in it, you're selling it for, you know, it's the funny thing is for a long time there, though, you were selling the card with the comic for 10 bucks. But if you removed the card and sold it separate, you were getting like $100 out of it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Go figure. Uh, just because I guess there is, you know, the, the people wanted a better look at it or whatever to see. But um, but yeah, so it was um, it's 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 funny because a few years ago, like we've been having that conversation of is this a bubble and is it going to burst for years? I think it's important to point out because, com- you know, vintage prices have been going up far faster than inflation for quite a long time. Yeah. But and they've I don't been think going up relatively stop. steady over the years. This is suddenly within just a few months. It's just quadrupled no for sure for sure and the funny thing is a few years ago i was having this conversation with my brother and i specifically told him i'll believe that we're in a bubble once x-force one is worth money and then i sent him the link when that happened and i said dude i quit (laughs) 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 i'm finding a new industry (laughs) but you know that's the card market they can and i do think the card market's in a completely unsustainable bubble um well the uh, comics are in the same spot man um it's not as bad i'm telling you i sold i sold i sold an ff48 Signed by Stan Lee in an eight a CGC eight I sold that last year. I sold it for sixteen hundred, and I doubled what I paid for it like five months earlier. One of those just sold for over five thousand dollars in a six and it's blue. Yeah, I had a X Men ninety four on my shelf until December. It was in a nine four grade signed by Chris Claremont, and we were asking I think twenty seven hundred dollars for it. And I decided, you know what, if that's not selling anyways, pull it. I don't want it up for any, because I think it's going to go up anyhow. I just saw a same grade blue label, not signed, sell for almost 6000 Crazy this week. So that was just a couple months ago, and it's tripled. So how long can this keep going up at this rate is the question. Until people so lose interest, Eddie. I don't think it does. <laughs> I think can't afford it. Yeah, until the, until the market can't sustain and afford it, I guess. And then there's your bubble pop. So, you know. I think post-COVID, you're going to see. I mean, you're going to have people that are going to cash out their yeah. collections because now they want to travel and they want to do things. You know, And I think you're going to see just people lose attention to a large extent because now they're doing things in you know, the real world again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think you'll see some softening post-COVID on every title. I think every book goes sure. down post-COVID. Um that doesn't mean I think there's a crash post COVID and a lot of it will depend on if people start panic selling mm-hmm. and that could definitely cause a crash. I mean, I'm hoping um, it's it'll just be interesting like maybe to see a, how that goes. I'm hoping it's just going to be a slow deflation. That's what I, that's what I anticipate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess we're trying to tell the future here, so you can't really know, no. but um, that being said, there are definitely certain issues that I think take bigger tanks than others. Um, I do think that. So one of the other pieces of this that I think is going untalked about is you're starting to see a lot of people popping up that are talking about comic books and collectibles as a more viable long-term investment vehicle um, than things like, you know, say stocks Mm -hmm. or, or the things that people typically would do or, or property. And I think a lot of this is also driven by the fact that most people in, you know, my brother's generation, they, the idea of owning a house is never going to happen and they know it. And so they have to have something that's in that is an appreciating asset. And so they're gravitating towards these things that they could chunk off at fifty and a hundred dollars at a time that they feel like can appreciate rather than having to afford something that they cannot get approved for and can't. can't sure, own. actually, pretty insightful. And so, yeah, I do think some of that's happening. Um, I don't think it's like the '90s 
Um, and the fact that I'm still not seeing, and, and tell me what you think on this, Eddie, but I'm still not seeing a lot of people coming in and buying a whole crap ton of new stuff that they, I'm never going to read this. I'm going to buy a hundred copies, put it aside. Cause it's going to like retire. Yeah, that's not happening, um, but you still do have the speculators that are coming in for certain books, certain hot variants, that kind of thing. But the whole nineties buying, you know, 50 copies of the death of Superman, that is not a thing. Not at all. No. And, and, and you look at it, even the highest printed books right now are pale in comparison. to. Yeah. And spec- speculation is really a pump and dump thing right now. It's, you know, you buy mm-hmm. 10 copies and you sell them all that weekend. You don't. Right. Yeah. And when you wait till it goes hot before you buy 10 copies, no, very few people are buying 10 copies ahead of time. Like I'm not having people come in with a previews and saying, I want 50 of this book. Right. Yeah. Here. Um, yeah, because I guess you don't know if it's hot and popping until people want it, I guess. I yeah, they come in on Wednesday and see mm-hmm. the stuff's already pre-selling at triple what cover price is, and now they want to buy all of them that are already on the shelf, and you have to tell them, sorry, no, those are for the readers. Exactly. Um, but – and even then, it's maybe what? I mean, again, I, your, your market's different, but I'd say maybe 5% of the people that we have walk through the door really even look at online market of new books. Most of them are just there to read. Most of them are just there to see what they want yeah. to purchase for themselves. Yeah. Um, majority you know, so of my customers, though, yeah, majority of my regulars, they're all readers. They come in every week to get the stuff that they read. Now, a lot of times when I tell them, yeah. you know, if they've got a book in their pool that suddenly, you know, it's jumped up to 20 or $30, uh, I'll tell them, I'll go, Hey, you know, you're lucky you had this on your pool and you're paying cover price. Cause this just already, this week has jumped up to like 25 bucks. And their, their, uh, reaction is usually like, Oh, really? Oh, huh. I'm just going to read it. Cool. And, or a lot of them will say, <laughs> yeah. or some of them yeah. will say, well, like, I read it and you can have it back afterwards if you want to sell it. Okay. <laughs> so there's only a small few. Yeah. Like, I think there's wanna... a lot. Go ahead, Joe. Despite, despite what Facebook would tell you, because most of the social inter- well, interaction. Well, I think there's, I think there's a lot others. of people who learn their lesson really quickly with that, where they'll, they'll start collecting and then like a Catwoman 23 will come out with the first cat girl. And that book that weekend, that's like the first cat woman book that that went to second print since like the 1990s. And that weekend, I think the book was selling for like 100 to 150 on eBay. And now I think we're probably like five months past it. It's a $10 book. Like, yeah, and I think a lot and of then, people learn that lesson really quickly. Mm-hmm. And like, then there are idiots just like one me time. that sell their Edge of Spider-Verse 2 for $12. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that happens too. Do you have too. more for 12 bucks? Um, Can I get a few? No, no, I do not. No, I wish I did. I sold my, I sold my land variant for a hundred bucks and thought I did well. Uh, so yeah, that was not a good call. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, that's, I have one and I don't know what to do with it because it's <laughs> the last it's just, five sales are 6,500. Is it going to hold that value? I mean, it's just like, yes. But it's yes. also yes. tough because yes. that's such a specialty item. I mean, if you, it was a key that was like a couple hundred bucks, you can sell that right away. Something like that, you've got to find the right buyer, and that's just going to take a while. Yeah, no, I understand, and I, I don't know. It's an interesting. I keep it. I, I yeah, I kind of, I kind of think it's. <laughs> I mean, I love Spider Gwen, and I love the the movie, and I know there's a lot more coming from her, so I. Yeah, I'll probably just keep it. So <laughs> you know what I what I'd like to hear from um from our guests to ask you guys is as far as like the speculators and as far as like the market trends and stuff, how much of that is talked about in with creators and with publishers? Because I feel like a lot of fans out there kind of feel like 
these publishers and creators are like, oh, let's just dump first characters and everything, whether it fits or not, because then it'll cause great sales and hype. And I don't personally feel like that's happening. Is, is that something you guys have seen? And do you guys, what's your, what's your you know opinion on that? Uh, dude, honestly, like I'm probably more involved with like sort of the indie scene than I am with like mainstream comics to a point. And so I would say that like on that side of things, there's like none of that happening. I hear like more of the talks I hear is like people wanting to do something different and something fresh and come at like the industry from a different angle kind of thing, you know, because I think on the indie side, we sort of deal with like that oversaturation that you guys are like worried about, you know what I mean? And like us just doing another book that's like Marvel or DC or whatever ends up just throwing that on the pile, that pile. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I hear a lot of creators wanting to do just something different and not necessarily talking about like, Oh, I need to put this character in here. First appearance, whatever for money, because for the most part, we don't really see the secondary market. You know what I mean? Like we don't have anything coming from that secondary market. So we only deal with like, you know, uh, people who buy direct, you know, whether that's like through a Kickstarter or something or, um, you know, dealing with like a retailer, if we have a book for sale or anything like that, that we want to like try to get into a shop, you know? So it's not as like hands-on with like, oh, I need to do this thing that like sells copies. My concern ends up being more, I need want to tell a really good story so that I can get like people interested in the, in what I'm doing so I can keep doing what I'm doing kind of thing. You know, like I'm, I think a lot of people that I talk to end up thinking a lot more in the long game about that stuff and not so much in the like, Hey, how do I turn this around and make quick cash right now? Yeah. And you hit on something that is a misconception that, um, I run into a lot. Uh, if a book gets hot the week it comes out, uh, I'll have people in the shop that will say stuff like, Oh, you know, the publishers are just doing this to make money. And I have to explain to them, that's not how it works because if me as a retailer, yeah, if I as a retailer raise the price of a book above the cover price, or if somebody buys it off of me for cover price and puts it on eBay for, you know, five times that, uh, the publisher's not making a dime off of that. In fact, um, they got their money two, three months previous when we as a shop owner put our orders in, when we knew nothing about that book and just ordered our usual numbers with no idea that that book was going to be hot. So um, that's a weird misconception that just seems to continue to be out there with more, I guess, more casual collectors and comic shoppers uh, that they don't realize that that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. I think they just see there's that confusion. You're right. And that like the secondary, that there isn't a secondary market. There's only the primary market and like we all deal with that, but yeah, there is definitely that resale secondary market. I think with anything collectible has that, you know? Um, So yeah, for sure. It's it's interesting. Doug, I know um, you are friends with a whole lot, like everybody and a lot of guys that, um, that work with Marvel and DC regularly, Um, you know, does this kind of stuff come up in conversation? Is this stuff that they're either concerned with like doing or not doing, or is it just kind of, you know, they just focus on the art? I mean, I think everybody, you know, especially when you're talking like Marvel and DC and, and some of the bigger publishers, they're hoping that something like that will happen with a book to get them extra attention. But honestly, everybody I talk to, the fight really is, is we know retailers have to choose between 500 books a month. And you're going to put as many of those on your stands as you can. How can we make my book stand out amongst 500 other books. That's our fight. That's our daily, like what we're thinking, like, well, you can, can mail me a nice check, Doug, and I'm happy to take <laughs> yeah, care of that for you. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what we're trying to think. We're like, I mean, we obviously want you to sell them. I mean, that's yeah. the big thing, but like, how can we get you to buy them to sell them? Like how, why are you going to stop? Why are you going to stop ordering one copy of Catwoman to order one more copy of Yumi? That's our daily thought in our fight. We're not worried about like, 
you know, how can we sell out or how can we put out a hot book? It's more like, and then that's even at the DC and Marvel level. They're like, how can I get you to stop buying one issue of Batman that Hoyt's working on versus the one issue of Catwoman that I'm working on? And so like when you start thinking about like, how can we exploit, you know, exploit the secondary market? That's not even a thought. Yeah, it's, it's like, how can I sell one more copy? <laughs> well, I think that that yeah. speaks to something in the modern age that I think is unique in the publishing side is how much we're seeing the rock star cover artist. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like there's so many artists now that they just do covers mm-hmm. and, and they can get that way. And these are the guys that these, these companies are really pounding. Like every time and Eddie will attest to this, every time we get like a pitch for a story or something from a publisher, you know, they're going to come up and they're going to pitch us the story, but every single time they're going to tell us who's on the cover. Yeah. Every single time yeah. they're going to tell us, or the, or if, if the A cover features the interior artist, they're going to talk about how the B covers Mark Brooks cover. And we need to be buying that one or an art germ cover or what. And, and I think that's what you're talking about, right? Like making it stand out off the shelf is that, that emphasis on that cover art that really grabs your focus and attention right off the bat and makes you notice to give it a chance. Well, I'm interested from your, from your guys' perspective, like, what do you think about that? I think the reality is it makes all the difference in the world. It does. I mean, whether Absolutely. it should or not, it just I'll does. Tell you, I'll tell you this. I'd never, I'd never read the ride before. And that issue you did with the pink, uh, pink unicorn on the cover. Oh, Adam Hughes. Yeah. By Adam Hughes. I grabbed that immediately. <laughs> I saw that on the wall and just pulled it just up and I read it and I loved it. <laughs> and then I went back and got into the rest of it. Yeah. Like it or not, it is. <laughs> but the that cover, cover, yeah. That Adam Hughes cover did made all the difference. Cause if that wasn't there, I probably would have just walked right past it, but that popped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Premier cover artists get what they get for a reason. And, um, you know, the market supports it for a reason, because like you said, there's so many books and there's so many things that people have to pick through. And, you know, I can, I have books every week that I really enjoy and I want to hand sell. Right. And, in my shop, you know, like for example, you know, going back, Doug, I know I've talked to you about plastic, but the week plastic came out in Nerd Store, and at the time we were a lot smaller, it was easily our best selling book that week. And it wasn't even close. But that's still only like for us that week, I think it was like 30 or 40 copies for us. We were a relatively small store at the time. Um, so on your total numbers, that that makes a barely a blip, you know what I mean? So to every store isn't gonna have the same opinion of that book. They're not all going to be as excited for it based on the solicit. They're not going to have someone in their hand selling it every time. And so you need that ability to passively sell the book because that hits every eyeball. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But how many shops do that? That's why you've got to have that rock star cover artist. I mean, that's the equivalent of basically uh, a big company hiring, you know, the top ad agency to make them the best TV commercial to sell their product. It's pretty much, it's exactly the same. So I think, I think this also is a little bit behind the store cover craze that you're seeing right now, like the store exclusives craze. I think there's a lot from the publisher standpoint that they want to, because when you do a store exclusive on a book, that means you really believe in the art and you believe in, in the book. And you're more, I can tell you as a store owner who does store exclusives, if I did an exclusive on a book, I am more likely to hype it off the shelf, hype it coming in, pre-hype it. Like it's going to get built in advertisement and stuff because I'm trying to sell that cover. And so overall I'm going to do a, put a lot more weight behind that book than if we're a book, even if even a book I really like that just comes out as a regular, you know, solicit. Yeah. Well, you have stake in that game. Like you have skin in that game, right? Cause I mean, exactly. like typically as far as how I, I know the retailer is actually fronting a lot of the price for the artist to do All that. 
Yeah, exactly. So that's on you. You're putting skin in the game. They're getting you involved. You know, I mean, I think from the publisher side, they're obviously want you to do that because they're going to move more units, right? Because there's like a minimum order number you have to order of whatever cover, and that varies yeah, depending from company on the company. publisher. Yeah. The real small guys sometimes are between about two fifty to three hundred copies. Mm-hmm. The big guys are three thousand copies. Wow! Right. And right. yeah, that's why we don't do Marvel and DC very often. Um, <laughs> it's a huge it's, it's, ask, just, yeah. it's just a huge number. But like we did, we did three covers for Last Ronin number one. And the total print run between them was like 950 books. Yeah. Um, and did you make your money back so on that? It's a, oh, did dude, you? that one. That's the most profitable thing I've ever done. Well, yeah. See, so like, that being said, there are others I lost lost out on that that has to balance out. So, yeah. But also, Roger, going back to the original topic, a lot of s- exclusive store variants like that are also something that is just really just going nuts lately. No, it's because because you can make money at it. I mean, we've done pretty well with them in the last year, and we've I've really taken a lot of my time. What I do with the business now is specifically coordinating those things and making those projects happen because they've been so profitable. And as far as we talk about a bubble, you know, I don't personally think that whenever this market softens, even if it does become a you know true bubble, um, I think you'll see some market retraction. I think you'll see a consolidation of how many um, things are put out as far as total titles. I don't think it's going to be dramatic. I don't think you're going to see people selling off IP um, to survive. I don't think you're going to be seeing that kind of stuff. I don't think there's even the possibility of that at this stage. That being said, the one area where I think there will be a big contraction is what we're talking about right now. Um, the store exclusive variant aspect of things, um, because that is very speculator driven. Um, yeah. That is very, because it's purely cover driven. Um, and that is, you know, for every, you know, last Ronin, for example, um, you know, we definitely sell them to readers and to sell them to people that just like it because of the cover. But that is the one area in my store where I really notice speculators coming in my store is when I have an exclusive that's on the on the shelf, especially if it's one that pre-sold out and is now going for double or triple on eBay. You know, that's the ones when we have those where we have a line out front of people waiting to, you know, snag up, snag up those titles. Um, and so that's one area where I do think that we're really set for a market consolidation. Um, I think that'll hurt, you know, one of the things when people rant about variants that I, I like to point out is a lot of artists get into comics through variants and a lot of them like get their opportunity and, and build a career out of this or that. So I do think it'll hurt a little bit as far as getting new artists in the game and a lot of your smaller artists that are making their money that way. Um, but, um, you know, overall, I think the industry will be fine, but I would expect a consolidation in that portion of it. Yeah, I think that's reasonable, man. I, I mean, it's sitting on the same notes we were talking about earlier about like just the bubble and all of that stuff. And there's a certain point where the market can't sustain that, you know what I mean? And then it won't work as well, you know? And again, I think and one of those things I think that's awesome about like that aspect is, you know, it puts sort of like, so I do, I do quite a few like store variants, you know, every year or whatever. And um, what I like to do is I always like sign up. I'm just like, Hey, okay, cool. If I'm doing your store variant, I'm doing a signing. You know what I mean? I'm coming through, I'm hanging out because I want to like help the store sell as many copies as possible for that book, you know? Um, Because I think in the industry, the way that it's set up currently and it's changing and it's evolving and all that, of course, but um, a lot of the risk for like what we do in our industry falls on like us, the creators who have to like take the upfront risk of actually like making the thing. And then the back end risk of like the retailers who have to order way before they even know what a thing is and hope that they have like some kind of like, you know, 
support for that. And you're just rolling the dice. Like you don't know, you know, like there might be people that come in and order a specific thing and you know, you can sell that one. But if you order 10 copies of something, you might not have the 10 customers to like support that or whatever, you know, just based on whatever. Um, So I think that puts a lot of risk on those two ends and the guys in the middle sort of don't take it on as much of that risk. So any opportunity that I can have like to go to a store or help a store out to like mitigate that risk. Cause I totally understand it. You know what I mean? Um, especially since I also worked in the comic shop for like six years through college and high school and stuff, I, I totally understand that whole hustle. So, um, you know, I want to like help. And I think that like that might continue as long as like artists who are doing those store exclusive variants have a good relationship with the shops that they're doing because you build a relationship of like, Hey, one hand oh, yeah. washes the other, both wash the face kind of thing. You know, like yeah. Yeah, I'm getting paid to do the cover, but I'm helping you sell copies. So, you know, like I'm trying to help you get your money that you put into me back so that, you know, we're cool to do this again. You know what I mean? Um, and so mitigating that risk as much as possible to me is like one of my goals um, as I like just continue in my career because I find it unfair, honestly. <laughs> you know, like it's I, you know, just, I don't. I, it's a lot. We've had we've had discussions before COVID on where we thought the industry was going. And we all talked about how, you know building events and community is where the comic industry was going. And that kind of came to a halt real fast. Yeah. (laughs) But I do think it goes back to that. I do think that becomes essential. And I think you have a lot of stores right now. What I, what I worry about with retailers is how many people forget that they're retailers through this, because a lot of people have a custom and not to pick on you, Eddie, but you know, you certainly, you know, during this kind of went more online. Um, I know a lot of guys that went more to eBay sales, more to live streams on Facebook has been a real popular way to cope with this. And, and it's done really well for them during this span. And as long as they remember that they're retailers and can go back to that, I think that, that it will be a good way to get through it. But I'm really concerned when I've seen some of the retailers I've seen that have completely divested in the retail end because this has been so profitable for them to do all these live streams and stuff. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen when those people aren't bored in front of their computers every night and they don't care to watch three hours of you hawking comics anymore because there's more important and more entertaining stuff going on well we didn't and and i do think you're going to see some people that'll be that'll be victimized by that as far as the retailer end of things well we never we never forgot our our regulars at all um when we were locked down yeah we were trying to sell as much stuff as we could online literally going into the storage room in our back room and like digging through everything what can we put on ebay what can we put online what can we do to keep making money but we also quite literally would come in, we would still do unbox our books every week, do all our pulls. And then on Wednesdays, because the uh, customers couldn't come in, we were going down a list and calling each of them one by one by one by one to let them know we got your books. Uh, At the time, it was a short time where we could still do curbside, but we were also telling them we'll ship them out to you. You know, and we were in constant contact with them every week. So we never forgot the retail side. We never, we tried to stay connected to our our regulars consistently. No, you were picking on me, man. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I mean, have you seen, I don't know if you've seen that, but I've seen shops that I can, you know, I'm not going to name them, but I've seen shops that have gotten so focused on Uh, on that aspect of things that now you go in their stores and the store doesn't have, the, you know, the, the displays aren't as nice. The, the stocking's not as nice. The service isn't there like it was because now they're in the back room shooting a video mm-hmm. or doing all this digital and online stuff sure. and feeling like that. And people have made major investments into like super expensive equipment to do these, these, you know, live feeds and stuff. And for some of them, it will stick long term. But I just, man, I wonder 
how many of them are left with a lot of equipment that they just isn't paid for <laughs> when it's all said and done. Well, it's something that you can do on top of what you're already doing, not in in lieu of what you should be doing. But um, no, and I agree with that. But there's only so many eyeballs, and I and I do think there's a lot more people willing to spend three hours watching some guy hold up a comic book with a post-it note on it mm-hmm. right now than there will be once you can you know go to a restaurant. I think that sure. that will make a big difference of what you're willing to spend your time doing. Uh, agreed. I absolutely agree. We've gotten way off subject. I think we wanted to mention one thing I wanted to talk <laughs> about though, actually is, um, is regarding this bubble thing. And then I definitely want to get to our guests and have them uh, talk about their new project. But one thing about the bubble thing, we talked about what is happening, but we are not, hadn't really hit on what we think is the reason why. I mean, we've talked about it in previous shows. Uh, what could be, you know, um, contributing to it. But, uh, I mean, even before we hit record here, we were talking about some things as well that definitely we want to touch on because there's some interesting things going on that might be contributing to this bubble and why certain keys especially are going for way more than they've ever gone for. Yeah. I, I posed the question earlier before this all went down. Um, if the theory was on NFTs, uh, non-fungible tokens, I don't know if anybody out there really is familiar with all of that, but it's a form of cryptocurrency based off of Ethereum that essentially like makes a one of one tracking number for an item or digital, like physical or digital item that you can like verify through the blockchain that that is the actual original or that that is the actual person who owns it and stuff. So it's like a extra layer of security and such. And my, my question was like, if they, if anyone thought that like that had something to do with that, if people are actually like taking their, their collections and like minting them with Ethereum, you know, and then that, because it costs money, obviously it costs cryptocurrency to do that. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's somewhere in the range of like to mint a NFT, it costs anywhere between like 200 to who knows how much, you know, that you're going to pay, um, in crypto to mint that thing. Um, so yeah, I was wondering about that. I don't know how many people out there are like familiar or whatever, but it's like a really interesting thing that's popping off right now um, for art and uh, collectible stuff. So I'm wondering if that has I've anything to do. I've seen a lot of that in sports cards. I have not personally seen that in comic books. Yeah, I haven't seen all. it in comic books either. That's why I was wondering what if that might be your idea of driving that force. Um, I've seen people do it with their art and I've seen people like create games with it and stuff, but I hadn't seen that happen with like comics. So that like- I, I've seen a lot of speculation- that the uh, the new high-end collectors are coming from the crypto market, the Bitcoin mm-hmm. explosion, people who made a lot of money off of that. Um, also people from foreign markets that, mm-hmm. you know, they just might not be experienced with uh, the comic industry and that might be driving. And, but I, I think the people, what they're focusing on there is, we're talking the like big silver keys yeah. and uh, golden age stuff. But sometimes people with money who don't know better overpay and they affect the whole market. Oh yeah, it yeah. Seems oh, yeah to be the case. And the thing well, is, with, with books, rich like, people with, using art to launder money for I don't know how long. You know, like buying like oh, yeah, expensive yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, crazy. All that stuff. So, I saw I that. I think a lot of those. I think a lot of those people that have been using fine art are realizing people are kind of onto that and that there's can do comics. There's, and other stuff. I think, well, I think there's, there's a certain barrier of entry, like to use fine art, right? Like you mm-hmm. have to have like stupid money. And I think there's a lot of people that don't have stupid money, but still got money. And they want to find a way to do the same Easy thing. Easy to reach. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. And I think 
three or 4,000 on a comic book is a whole lot easier to do than three or 4 million on a painting. And so they're able to do those things. So I think you have, I think you have that. I think you have, like I said before, the people that want an appreciating asset who can't afford homes and things like that. They're looking for other places to put their, their money. And then the, you know, add in that little extra dose of nostalgia and you can have something that's cool. You can show off. It makes it that much more, you know, enticing. Um, so I think those are happening. And then, you know, Joe, what you touched on with the foreign markets coming in, I think that's not necessarily even speculative. I think it's probably safe to say that with the proliferation of Marvel movies and, and superhero culture, there's a lot of people in these foreign markets who are now like we were a lot for a lot of people in the early 90s, first exposed to superheroes and falling in love with these things. So you're having a really growing consumer base. Right. where the supply is still very, very, very low. Anytime you have a big increase in demand and, you know, constricted in, in uh, limited supply, you're going to see markets, you know, increase in value. And the, and you know what? What's selling, that makes a lot of sense because you aren't seeing that, you know, you still are only seeing, you know, an Action 1 or a Superman 1 or a Batman 1 or a Tech 27. You know, we're still seeing the same amount of sales and there's the market on those is relatively I mean it has increased but not like not like what we're seeing. Increase. Yeah, not like with the they're not what tripling. we're seeing with the mar- <laughs> with the Marvel silver keys, you know, like And and I think I think what what you chopped on with the uh, whole like crypto like boom thing as well with people having like some more influx of cash as well. I think one thing to note is that that crypto boom happened to a younger set of people. Right. Like not as many older people got into the crypto thing as quickly as the younger generation got into it. Mm -hmm. So maybe that has something to do where they see the value. So you're talking that maybe the older generation didn't see, you know, kind of like a new money. You're also seeing it. Yeah. What's up? Well, in yeah, video yeah. games are seeing the same spike and that would, that would attest to kind of what you're there saying. There you go. Yeah. yeah. As well, there's a bunch of kids out there with money now, you know, like there's a bunch of kids out there with money doing. You touched on something, Roger, that actually, um, has been been a thing for a while. Anytime the economy dips, goes bad for a bit, a lot of people with money have put that money into high-end collectibles because it's safe Mm -hmm. and they pretty much park it there. It's always been a thing. Whenever you look at like uh, the record-breaking highs that an Action Comics number one or Detective 27 have sold for, it's almost always at a point when the market is in a downturn because people are putting money elsewhere. But I think now with cryptocurrency, you're now looking at a market where people, uh, you don't need to be a multimillionaire. People are making money and parking it elsewhere um, in not so high end collectible stuff. That's maybe, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars as opposed to, you know, a million. So I think that all of this seems to be tying together. I see a lot of talk about people putting their money into dollar and five dollar books too, like people that have very little but go, hey, you know, this contains a first appearance that I think ten years down the line is a character we that might get the public consciousness because of the way this story arc is going. So it's only five bucks now, and I know it's a long term, but I'm going to pick this up right <laughs> now because I can. Yeah. You know, like I'm seeing a lot of that, and and create that creates urgency for others too, because like for you know we've talked about this, Joe, but like I'm a big fan of Gwenpool. You better believe every time Gwenpool has something come out that's like a key or a really cool cover, I pick it up because I don't want to have to buy it for $50 later because <laughs> all of a sudden – because that happened to me with with X-23. I loved X-23 and I wanted all of her stuff and then I was like, oh, I can get it later. She's never coming in the movies. No one will ever find out about her. Well, she did. And then all of it became unattainable and now I couldn't afford any of it. So every time I see all these – so now it's, if it's a character X- I enjoy, I just grab it. Those X-23 yeah. issues are worth a bunch of money? 
So Dang, oh, I gotta go yeah. through my short box. Yes. Yeah, I gotta go through first my short boxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her first appearance is well over a thousand dollars now. Yep. Ooh, I'm about to yeah. be rich, y'all. <laughs> 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 by by the way, on this, an interesting note for you guys literally just happened right as we were recording this. The a new record was set for Pokemon card sale. Jeez. Um there was a Illustrator Pokemon, which is one of the or Illustrator Pikachu. It was a promo card given at a drawing contest in Japan in 1998. There was 39 of them produced. Mm -hmm. One of them went up for sale in a seven grade. Here's the craziest thing about this. I know for a fact this is not the highest grade version of this card. And it just became the highest dollar Pokemon card ever sold. Um, It sold for $375,000. Jeez. That just just (laughs) happened. About just that just happened about gut. thirty seconds ago. <laughs> that just hit me in the gut, dude. <laughs> well, I mean, in a world, in a world so, where rappers and- <laughs> are sticking twenty-two million dollar diamonds into their foreheads, um, so I'm not that I'm not that shocked by a three hundred thousand dollar poker card. Yeah. So this brings thing <laughs> that you and I talked about, Roger, about the market spiking and people jumping on things. Uh, PSA, the card grading company, which is pretty much the standard as far as grading cards go, um, as far as grading Pokemon cards, uh, because there's so many people speculating on the market and buying stuff up and sending them to be graded, the wait time now to get, say, a Pokemon card graded through PSA is over a year. Because they that's are so also flooded drive the price up. with submissions. Yeah, that's probably yeah. also how they drive. Because that's, that's, that's another bottleneck yeah. that's creating rarity yeah. right there at the and end. And same yeah, thing yeah. with well, CGC. And you're, you're seeing it to a lesser extent with CGC. Yeah. It's the same thing. Well, no. Yeah. So I was looking at buying a John Romita Sr. autographed uh, Marvel Series 1 card. And I was trying to figure out how to grade it. And card grading is... I mean, I'm I'm reasonably decent at grading comics. Card grading is a whole nother beast. I mean, it is, it is, I was like looking through, I was trying to look through what, what the requirements are and how to, and I just couldn't even begin to like come up with a number. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's a whole different thing. So basically Roger, the goal here is ride that wave, sell your stuff and you want to be empty handed by the time that wave hits the shore. You don't want anything here, left the, over here, that you here, can't sell. Yeah, and the problem is no one knows when that is. And no one knows <laughs> if that is, frankly, because I, I don't think I don't think giant size X-Men is ever coming down from where it's at right now. I don't think X-Men 1's ever coming down from. And I know those have recently spiked to crazy heights. I think they're there for good. And so, like, it's it's not that easy to tell. It, it this comes back to the number one piece of advice I always give to new collectors, because you have people come in that want to read, and, and and those are most of them, especially at cons and stuff. You have people that generally are readers who say, oh, I also want to invest, right? Most of your investors also read. And we've talked about this, the difference between comic investors and speculators. We've had episodes on that. But the number one piece of advice I give everyone is don't spend money on it if you wouldn't still be okay if it was valueless. Um, so if you're buying something, buy it because it's a cat. I bought a Nix number three, nine, eight, like six months ago for $750. And I was mad when I did it. Cause I've passed up on them many times for cheaper, but I said, you know what? I have to have X 23's first appearance in my collection. This is a good price on current market. I'm just going to do it. I have money right now and I've never looked back and yeah, it's gone up. If it got, went down though, I'd still be happy with it because it's a book that really meant a lot to me. And I really wanted, you know, when I buy stuff for me personally, it's X 23 it's Gwenpool. It's 
tur- Ninja Turtles. Like those are like the top three things that I'm buying for me personally. If those go up, great. But if not, I have a lot of cool stuff, you know? So um, that's the number one piece of advice I give to everybody is like, if you're a Spider-Man guy and you want to invest, that's great. Buy, you know, blue chip and silver age and stuff, but buy Spider-Man, buy the guys that you're into. Cause if you end up getting stuck with a bunch of fantastic four and you're a Spider-Man guy, you might be a little more pissed off than if it doesn't work out. For I, I tell people uh, something similar. I tell them you want to invest, buy what you love. If it goes up in price, great. If it doesn't, you still have what you love. Yeah, yep. that's the, that's the Warren that's Buffett the... method of investing, right? Is like invest in the things that you know, not in the things you don't. So yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, and yeah. I think it's important too because if you if you look at a lot of what drove the bust of the '90s, it was because most of the people buying those comics they didn't care about comics or like what they were buying or care at all. <laughs> and so when they went to sell it and it wasn't selling for a bunch of money, they literally just dumped it. They weren't they weren't trying to hold. They were they were trying for a couple years to flip. And, and they were all, and so then they just dumped on the market and nobody cared. Right. And, and I don't think you're going to see that this time because I'm still, I have not had a single person that I know that's a comic investor and you may have Eddie, but I haven't had any that I know that are comic investors who don't also read and enjoy comic books. I've not had one. Um, and they certainly are a small minority if they do exist. And so I think that's one of the really important distinctions of what's happening now versus the nineties bust right there as well. I can tell you a funny story regarding the nineties bust. I think it was about four or five years ago. A guy came in with multiple copies of the black bagged death of Superman issue and laid them on the counter and literally with a smile said, I'm ready to cash in. (laughs) (laughs) i bet you are (laughs) and when i told him what it goes for now at that time did he cry and what i would pay the smile just dropped all the way to the floor (laughs) if i remember correctly with you i think he mentioned something about he's gonna buy a boat and i i I hope yeah, it's like a when I worked in a comic shop, maybe like once, uh, once every like two, three months, because we had a bunch of those in the dollar bin, you know? Yeah. And uh, someone would come through, pull one out of the dollar bin and go, oh my God, I can't believe I just found Yeah. Thing. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's not like there wasn't yes. a million made. <laughs> right, right, right. If you search through a few more of those bins, you'll find a few more. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, then you go like, in the back pull one out of the 300 copies. Yeah, back there and sneak yeah. one in just, yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's so that's actually why I got out of dealing sports cards is I had so many people coming in with their collections of 90s garbage being like and I had to mm-hmm. tell them do they have that conversation about and they would get so mad at me like I made them valueless. Yeah, like I have people like <laughs> spitting in my face angry and like sh- like throwing things at me and are and being like you're trying to rip me off. I'm like, how would it be possible for me to rip you off by saying I don't want something <laughs> like, I, there's no transaction happening here. That's literally there's. There's no gain for me on that. Like, that doesn't do me how good, many people just left their how many people just left their collections sitting on your counter? Roger? Oh, all the time, yep. all the time. But yeah. they'd always throw them first. Yeah, they would never just leave them. They'd always push them or throw them yeah. or yeah. something to make sure so they were damaged. They, they, the yeah. tip over the long box was yeah. a standard. You know, the tip over and they just spill out. It's like, okay, we'll see ya. You know, yeah, thanks. yeah, yeah. No, that happens, especially at the '90s image. That's always a fun one too. The I've literally, I've no, literally had that same conversation, Roger, with somebody where they literally turn it. Convince, uh, uh, tell me that I'm ripping them off when I have to tell them I'm not ripping you off if I don't want to buy them. I don't want them. <laughs> yeah. And then they say, yeah, fine, if I was well, offered just 10 bucks, them. I could see how you could think yeah. that. Yeah, but I don't want them. And then they are like, no, they I don't mad. want to, please. Yeah. And then they get mad and leave them on the counter and they're like, fine, just keep them. Oh. <laughs> 
more more crap I got to deal with now. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Right. Your dumpster bill just went yeah. up a little bit. I was so telling my was wife about like- something I remembered the other day. We had a uh, um, a homeless guy that lived near our shop, and he would always come in and buy like fifty cent books just to have something to read. And he came in one day, and he said, "Hey, man, I found these comics in the dumpster, and I mean, I love you guys." And I don't want them to just be in the dumpster. I want you guys to have them. You can at least put them out and sell them for like 50 cents or 99 cents or something. I was like, cool. Thank you. And then I look in there and there's a Spider-Man 300 in the little stack. (laughs) I thought you were going to say they were my comics that I put in the dumpster. (laughs) No, no. So what we're learning is is to death. What we're learning is it's very lucrative to dumpster dive in L.A. That's what <laughs> I, we're learning from this I whole guess, podcast. Well, that happened once. And then I literally wanted to, I told him, look, this is worth money. Let me give you something. And he was like, no, nah, man, I just I love you guys. I don't want to take your money. I don't want your money. I think I ended up giving giving him like 20 or That's 30 amazing. bucks just to give him something. But uh, yeah, that happened once. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk Yumi Spy, Fatal, Batty Royale, because it's uh, we've been making these guys listen to us rant for the last 56 minutes and I'm sure oh, we're they're cutting ready. all that out. Don't worry guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're ready to tell us about their uh, project. So uh, Doug, why don't you uh, kick it off and tell us what this is about? Okay. So Yumi spy fatale, batty Royale uh, is basically Hoyt put in the best possible way. A couple of interviews ago where he said, um, it's a hello kitty grenade filled with cute, sassy phosphorus. And so, like, <laughs> like that's like the basic like fun of it. Um, basically, Hoyt and I took the James Bond trope and kind of flipped it on its edge, and kind of went, you know, here's James Bond. He's always running around, and he's always seducing these women to get what he wants. What if he just seduced the wrong woman? And so, basically, you run into this like young, sassy, modern female who's probably twice the spy he will ever be, and we kind of refer to her now as an anti-spy. And so, like, and uh, so it's basically like Yumi is in love with this double O agent, and she's fallen in love with him, and she's going to find him no matter what it takes. And that includes burning every intelligence agency of the world to the ground until she can find him. And the intelligence agencies are in over their heads. They have no idea what they're up against. So, you know, we're just kind of having like this fun, like she's in the Snapchat, so she's Snapchatting as she's doing it. Um, we've got a talking Lamborghini that has the voice of Cardi B. Um, <laughs> you know, like we're doing it. We're doing, we just basically Hoyt and I threw everything we wanted at this to have fun. Like it's just like this really fun. Yes, it's it's got James Bond as, as its foundation, but it, it's really about this young, sassy, like anti-spy super hacker. <laughs> you know <laughs> what? I'm excited about this. this I, I, you know what this kind of reminds me of? And I'm it kind of reminds me of when I heard about Grand Theft Auto Vice City coming out and they're like, we're taking the eighties and we're going to take every gangster movie and shove it into one game. And then we're going to give it our own spin. And uh, we're going to give you this great thing that you're going to, I mean, I still play that game on my phone <laughs> 20 years later. So I'm excited to check this out. Yeah. And that's, I mean, there's a lot of what you just said is there's a lot of the eighties in there. I mean, that's a, that's a recurring theme in there is like we took the eighties and we jammed them into modern day. It's like, what are the eighties with Snapchat? You know, like, what, what does that look like? And That's uh, so, awesome. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we just had a lot of fun with it. So, yeah, uh, wait, to... yeah, what are you uh, doing with the visuals for this? 
dude, you know, honestly, like this is probably like the best interior art I've ever done on any book, like ever. Uh, it took me a really long time to like draw this and put it together. Uh, it's different than anything I've done before. If anybody out there has like seen my previous work, um, I, I kind of change it up a lot from, you know, story to story. But once we started talking about that, we were going to do sort of a James Bond spoof. I realized that like I needed to step into basically like leveling up the the prettiness of my art because like if we're spoofing something like the spy genre itself has a sort of like sexy allure to it you know so i was like okay well how do i make stuff look better you know kind of thing and how do i make it look more sleek and more and everything and, and tell an action story with it too because um one of the things that i wanted to get across in the story is i wanted to move really quickly like i wanted it to like basically feel like you're just like at a thousand miles an hour like barreling through everything because that's sort of like how we built the character um as far as like the action scenes are concerned and like doug was saying she we craft her as an anti-spy so if in a situation james bond would be sleek smooth and try to like get in there covertly or whatever she's not having it she's walking in the room with a rocket launcher blowing everybody up you know just like creating mass havoc and getting what she wants you know she's not really trying to be subtle she's not trying to be anything and one of my favorite things about what doug did with the character is he made her unapolog unapologetically herself like she doesn't care you know that people wouldn't like her or that she's she just wants what she wants and she is the person she is and she's doing what she thinks she needs to do to get there and so i think like when doug crafted that he took what we were kicking back and forth to like just a whole other level and um so in order to sort of bring that into the art i just like tried my best to essentially reinvent how I do things in order to tell that story as good as possible. Um, I don't really consider myself like an artist and I know that's semi pretentious of me to say, um, <laughs> I think myself more <laughs> of like a, a, a storyteller. Like I would rather you read a book, not really even know it was me and then be like, Oh crap, Hoyt did this. That's crazy. You know, like I didn't see this coming kind of thing. Um, my, I guess like my own like personal goal is to become like the Gary Oldman of comics, you know, to like do comics forever. But like a lot of times people will be like, Oh, that was that guy. Dang. I didn't know, you know, like kind of thing because that's cool. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Yeah. I mean, I mean like, you know, it's like, I see it as two ways. If we're going with actors, you know, there's like the Gary Oldman way of doing things, like I said, subtly and really, taking on the character so that you see the character and not Gary Oldman. Right. Um, but then there's like the other side, which is like Bruce Willis, let's say, you know, and it's like Bruce Willis, although I love John McClane, every single movie that Bruce Willis is in is a John McClane flick, you know, like the movie bends itself around him to make it that like new John McClane like sequel. And there's total merit in that. And that's, that's all fun and, and all of that. But like, I don't want to do the same thing over and over and over and over again. I like to like keep it fresh and like just try to stay out of my comfort zone as much as possible. So I like want to go in that direction with it. And I think that's a lot of what I end up doing with this book. So, so I, I have a question on the project, um, you know, and, and for anyone who has not seen the Kickstarter, like, look, even if you can't afford to back it right now, go and look at it. Cause the, the art and the covers that you guys did on this thing were incredible. Oh, um, the layout, you. like the whole thing you guys did something I've never seen before, which is a um, metal covered, OGNs, like a yeah. graphic novel yeah. and with a metal cover, which is super cool. Um, and, and man, I just, the artists you guys got for these covers, it, it, it really encapsulates, I think what you just described to me in the book so well. Um, what would you guys say is your kind of your target demographic um, for this book? Like who is it that you're, 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 you're hoping 
mean, obviously you want everyone to read it, right? But like, what's, what's kind of, what's, who is it that you're really going for? Cause I, I you know, I hear you describe this, but it feels like my 13 year old daughter would love the hell out of this, but is this right. something that is for, is for her or is this for, you know, an older demographic or does it skew one direction? So I think like what we wanted to do is we wanted to do something different and there wasn't much of an outset from the beginning to be like, Hey, we want to make this for like these people. We made it for us. You know, um, but like, for example, uh, our editor, Lisako Yamauchi, she like gave us a different perspective to put in there, you know, being a female, being an Asian American, like she really liked helped us see a lot of things or just like guide us in a direction to make sure that like, you know, we weren't doing anything that was getting away from the original of what we wanted to do in that character that we wanted to capture. Um, and she was in her 20s at that time when we first started and stuff. So uh, I think like it probably might lend itself maybe somewhere in that, but you know, like I have nieces as well. Like I have two nieces. One is um, 13. The other one is 14. And um, I think I did this with them in mind as well in that, like, I wanted them when they were ready to have a character like James Bond to look up to, to a certain extent, because James Bond is sort of made for us. And I've, and my nephews all have stuff for them, you know, um, the original idea behind Yumi entirely came from a conversation that I had with our editor when I was reading the Ian Fleming books. And I was like, Hey, I'm reading these. They're like, they're cool, but there's like some stuff that's really like e for today, you know? And, um, we started going back and forth and she was talking about how, you know, there wasn't really anything like that out there for her. You know, she dug days, she thought it was cool. She liked the movies, but it wasn't made for her kind of thing. So we started to just riff on the tropes and sort of like how those can be twisted. And out of that conversation, I had an idea of like a character I kind of wanted to do in a situation, but then like literally Doug called me up the next day and was like, Hey, you know, what, uh, are you like, you know, what do you have? Like you want to work on something together. Um, and I was like, Hey man, I just talked to Lisa about this stuff. Like, you know, what do you think? And Doug just fell in love with it and came back with just the, freaking awesomest like outline I've ever seen for any story ever. And I was just like blown away. He took it in an insanely awesome direction. Um, but I think it does resonate on that. Like with the audience wise it, you know, I think like women in general, hopefully would like it, you know um, I hope that like anybody really can get a kick out of it. Like you said, um, cause we tried to put stuff in there for us too, obviously. Like I said, we weren't so it's really gonna, It's to- going to be appropriate for the YA market then if oh, they're yeah. looking for a yeah. good YA book. Yep. Yep. You can definitely go. I mean, what's weird about this one is like Hoyt was saying, we kind of wrote it for ourselves. So the fact that you think it's for a tween market explains a lot about our personality. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, there's Billie Eilish references right in the Kickstarter, man. Right off the bat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what's cool about it is we wanted her to be pretty modern. So, I mean, we had to kind of like both of us had to dive into that side of the the, the YA market since the main character is younger. Um, I think the odd thing we're finding out is so far all the beta readers we've run it by, no matter what age group they're in, they seem to like it. So like that that's where I struggle with. Like when you ask me what's the demographic, I'm like, I don't know, because I've shown it to my teen male and female friends and they're like, I love it. I've shown it to 20 year olds, 30 year olds, even up to a 60 year old and they like it. And I'm like, I don't know how to I think it's a lot like, you know, Roger, you and I've talked extensively about the plastic demographic. Because what I see at cons is 75% women between 25 and 35. That's my main goal. With, I mean, that was my main demographic at cons of, at, you know, with plastic, which I'm blown away by. I don't understand it. So it's not what you ask, predicted. Yeah. So when you ask me where Yumi falls, I can't answer because I don't know it. Like, I, I, I honestly, like, it, it, it all confuses me. 
Yeah, it was such like a sure. just a fun brainchild between us that we were just like basically like, oh man, I'd love to do this, and man, that would be cool. Oh, if we're having a Lamborghini, can it be electric blue? Can I make it change colors? Can I do this? You know, it was like a lot of that, and like even Lisa with her idea, like everybody was just like, man, you know, it'd be awesome. This, you know, and and we had like a really great experience while creating the book. I think because we had this like vibe of like one upmanship that was like positive. You know, I would get the script from Doug, and I'd be like, damn, this is sweet how do I make this cooler? You know, like how do I inject something in here to make this even more fun, more over the top, more of like just stupid extreme stuff that I can think of. And then I'd kick that sort of, you know, our editor's way and Doug's way. And then they'd come back with, oh man, well, if you're going to do that, you know, how about we do this, 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 and this. And it just kept like evolving and we just sort of, yeah, really built it up. And and it was a lot of fun with that. So it, it did grow organically. You know, it wasn't like we set out to be like, Hey, I want these people kind of thing. Sure. So, sure. so as a, as like, how does this collaboration compare to other experiences? Cause it sounds like this has truly been like a, like group, a team effort, like in the truest sense, like you guys are taking pieces from everybody on your team and, uh, and using them to the, you know, like use what works and throw away what doesn't. It sounds like of that almost ideal creative situation. I, I know for me, like you know, in all the creative books, all the creator-owned books I work on, that's that's what I aim for. I want everybody involved because I want all the creators to feel invested, like they're doing something they love and they and they're proud of at the end of the day. Even down to like, you know, talking to the letterer and going, "Hey, what do you think about this?" Like we had music notes in this, and we said, "Hey, Frank, like we need your help here. We don't have an idea of how we want to do this," and he came up with this great idea of how to put it in there. And so for my creator-owned books, like I try to get everybody involved because I feel like be honest with you i don't believe in my own stuff enough to like go hey you should do everything i tell you so i'm like hey hoyt here's like i have an idea does this suck or not and then i'll go well wait a minute what if we did this what if we took it to the next level and so that's what i always aim for i don't know what hoyt's like all of his other creator owned books are like no absolutely i mean i think that's that's the ideal like uh, us working together with what we did in in normal because i work mostly independent on independent stuff in my own things like I tend to have that relationship because nobody really wants to get invested at that level if there are if they aren't in it. And I think Doug and I both, even though we lack trust in ourselves, which is a weird thing, we have immense trust in each other for like the other side of things. So it's one of those things that like I never Doug might have been fretting about his writing. I never even brought it into question, you know, like I knew it was going to be good kind of thing. And um, that's sort of like how I like to approach projects as well, is that like if you get somebody for a position like, you know, like our colorist, Kevin Leonard's, for example, he came up as an intern in the studio with Stelfreeze and I. And then what ended up happening is uh, when we got on this book and, you know, Doug and I approached him to say, hey, man, like, if you want to color this book, here's what we want to do. This is the idea. This is the story we're telling. That was it. Like, that was the conversation, you know, um, beyond that, like Kevin just went off, you know, and then would come back like scene by scene and just show me those. And I was supposed to help him with the colors, but I didn't do any of that. You know, like he just would show up and I would be amazed at what he brought to the table and just be like, dude, more, like, where do you got it? Bring more, you know, (laughs) like come with it. And, um, that kind of relationship, I think helps breed that awesome creative, um, zone, you know, like when you know the, everybody else has their position covered. So you can just, so you're just trying to do the best you can do. I'm not worried about whether the colors is going to screw me. I'm not wor- wor- worried whether I have to like compensate for something, some lack of storytelling in Doug's script. I don't have to worry about my letterer covering the art or anything like that. You know, like 
we all know that everybody has their responsibility and are aware of everybody's. So I think at that point, what ends up happening is you do have like a really good synergy with all of that, you know, and mm-hmm. ideas can flow freely. So it doesn't always go that well. I mean, I think what no, it doesn't. I think the key to it is um is if you can find a, a group where ego is thrown to the side, where the book is the most important thing and not somebody necessarily their opinion or their, you know, their work is top. It's, it's the team in the book that's more important than your personal ego. Again, that doesn't, yeah, always, I think that's, that doesn't always happen. <laughs> I've really noticed, I've noticed in comics game in general, um, a lot of creators tend to have a small circle that they really like to work with and continue to go back to and continue to work with. And I think people underestimate how much personal dynamics come through as far as ways that you'll never really understand where they come through, but the quality of the final product, how much that makes an impact um, of what, you know, with what goes on behind the scenes. Yeah. I tell tell a lot of people at conventions who come for like portfolio reviews, wanting to be like a really good artist and stuff, you know, you have to put in perspective for them. I think that's like they, a lot of people consider what Doug does and what I do completely different things, but in actuality, what we do is the same thing. We tell stories. You know, and so with his words and my pictures, we can tell a story together. And at the end of the day, I'm not trying to be like the best artist I can be. I'm trying to be the best storyteller that I can be. And at the same time, Doug is doing that. Our colorist is doing that. And, you know, our editor is doing that. Everybody down the line is like trying to focus on the story, like Doug said, because we checked our egos on that stuff. And it is rare, actually, you know, that that happens 100%. Because sometimes you'll have somebody in there that'll sort of <laughs> muddy up the pool a little bit with their own, like, with their own uh, stuff. So, um, yeah, it's, I don't know where I was going with that. I, I got on a tangent, but that's it's awesome. Um, that's, <laughs> when we, when we spoke with um, Brian on the last time we had Doug on, um, when Brian Selfries was on with him, he, he touched on that very similarly about how, you know, he takes a very different attitude when he's doing an interior versus a cover because one's about an art piece and one is about telling a story and how that's not the same job and understanding what that means. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, I, I tell people a lot, um, you know, when we're talking about, cause believe it or not, I mean, just being in the industry, people come to me and ask me like, Oh, how can I be a comic artist? And my first thing is ask a comic artist. Yeah. Um, but one of the, you know, one of the things I tell them is understand that being a comic artist is more than being a great artist. Like it's more than being able to draw. Cause there's a lot of people that can draw really well, who can never break in, never make it in the industry. Um, and there's a lot of people who don't draw as well as some of those people who don't make it that do very well. And it's because, and, and there's so much, there's the, you need to be easy to work with. You need to be able to, um, you know, have the elements of understanding what it is you're trying to put out and you need to understand the business more than just the art. Um, and, and those are the things that I think separate the people who really get successful and have long career from the people who, and you need you know, to work be on a project or two and then kind of burn if out. If you have a deadline, you have to meet yes. the deadline. Yep. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's part yeah. of understanding the business end of things. Oh, absolutely. Understand that that's what that is. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, I think one of the when someone I think actually Brian uh, Stelfreeze put it into effect me the the best because when I first started off and I was sort of and I got into the studio and stuff like I would do what's called cherry picking, which is I'd get a page or get like a story or whatever, and I'd just draw my favorite panels from the comic first you know like oh this is gonna be a sweet panel or this is gonna be a sweet panel but then that's the equivalent of basically like eating everything and leaving the brussels sprouts you know what i mean and it's like okay now i have like 95 percent of this comic book to draw and none of it is going to be enjoyable you know like it's nothing all to look forward people. to it's like nothing <laughs> crazy um and so it doesn't give you the motivation to do that but what it does do when you do that is it makes you feel like you've done a lot, right? Because I'll feel like, oh, I did two panels on this page and this panel, this page has like three panels on it and this page has like a panel on it. So that's like a page, you know, 
But in actuality, I don't have any pages done, you know, like no pages are done. And there's a, um, there's a, and there's an assembly line behind me as the artist, you know, like there's a colorist that's going to come in and color after me. There's who's waiting on a paycheck. There's a letterer who's coming in after me that's waiting on a paycheck. So if I'm late and I mess that up, I'm also messing things up for them. You know, so I try to like consider that as well. Like there are people that depend on me to be on time so that they can keep their lives straight as well. You know, so it's, yeah, you're right. It's like that business aspect of it to make sure that you know that that's what you're doing. Do you work digital? Nothing is is worse than if the due date is a month from now and you give your pencils to the inker and or letterer the the, like one day before that month is due. It's a matter of knowing my task needs to take this amount of time. I need to leave this chunk of time for these people in the project as well. Instead of just saying, hey, I got it in on time. Right. And I think that that comes from that perspective can be learned through having like synergy in a group like Doug and I had, you know, and that like it was open, like I knew who was waiting on me down the line. I think sometimes if you like work directly with an editor and you don't ever talk to the writer, you don't talk to the colorist, you don't talk to the letterer, you can forget (laughs) that there's like more people on the team than just you. And that kind of thing can happen, you know? And of course life happens, like, you know, it takes a long time to do what we do. So sometimes you know, life happens and you can't help that. But sure. at the same time, you got to try to be as good as you can. I do want to thank both of you, though, for including a retailer bundle in your Kickstarter, because that's the one thing that I always uh, bug creators about, because they always ask me, and I'm sure they ask you, Roger, hey, will you carry my book? And your Kickstarter is a perfect opportunity for me to carry it. Put a, a retailer bundle in there. Make it easy for me to get multiple copies of your book. So as soon as it comes out, it goes right on the shelf. When I see that, I support. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much, man. Yeah, I mean, that, that goes into to our strategy of trying to mitigate that risk, you know, and, and help retailers out as well. You know, We ordered 15 up. copies for our shop, and I'm sure we'll order more. Thank as you soon so as much, we, I'm man. sure we'll sell through them, and we'll order more, too. And I'm going to have to personally, I'm going to get um, – couple of those metal covers from you guys. We're going to have to talk because I got to work something out yeah. there because those are just too cool to pass up. I, oh, yeah. I'm going to support as well because anytime a cool looking book like yours is coming out that features a female lead character, my wife is all over it because in case you guys aren't aware, I know Doug is aware. My wife runs the shop with me. She's right now, she's the one who's actively managing it. So any book comes out that has a, a, a really good female lead character, she's all over it. And she's hand selling it to everybody. So, uh, yeah. Well, the the Kickstarter ends on what the eleventh? Isn't the eleventh point? Yeah, mm-hmm. the eleventh. Yeah, March eleventh. Um, the book's completely done. So once we we know how many we need to get, we we'll order it. I mean, we don't have to do anything else. The book's designed. It's ready to go. It's print ready. Uh, I've drawn all 136 pages. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they're all lettered, colored, yeah. assembled. Everything is like good to go. Yeah. Did you bind so, them? <laughs> no, we can't. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in our okay, case. you found our flaw. You found our. <laughs> I, want, I want my copies hand kissed. <laughs> we can work something out. We can work something yeah, out. Work something out. Yeah. Um, basically, if you just go to if you punch in Kickstarter Hoyt and Doug, it pops up. So that's what I love about this one is it's pretty easy to find. Um, again, it's it's Yumi Spy Fatale uh, Batty Royale, um, and Yumi is spelled Y U M I. Correct. And we, we'll put a link to that in the uh, in the description as well. Awesome. No, thank you. And so again, even if you can't back it, go look at it because it is absolutely gorgeous. It is. I'm I'm headed straight there. 
Tell your friends to back. All right. <laughs> so we are going to talk WandaVision to close things out here. If Because we have it and you have to. It's an obligation. <laughs> if you haven't caught up. Anything nerd, you have to. If you haven't to. caught Probably up. Roger's here. <laughs> so do y'all want the opinion of whatever y'all are going to talk about from someone who has not seen the show at all? Yeah, y'all like just, yes, just make it up. completely yeah, just random. Okay, make it up. I'm going to tell y'all my, no, see, my straight up see, thoughts about see, this. Please inform me. You did it the wrong <laughs> way. We should have had us everyone guess which one of us hasn't seen it and then do your best to blend uh, in. True. Uh, that's true. That's true. I would have failed right away. Though, that. so that's it. fine. Um, all right, all right. <laughs> so if you haven't caught up on WandaVision, <laughs> you are going to want to stop listening now. So we're going to give you you about 20 seconds or so to, uh, you know, bounce out. Thank you for listening. We appreciate it. And we don't want to spoil this for you. So we're going to give you 15, 20 seconds here. And then we are going to continue and we are going to spoil this thing. So (laughs) get out. Yeah. Go now. We don't want you anyways. We don't want our listeners. <laughs> we want all our listeners and we appreciate you very much. Don't listen to Eddie and Roger. Don't listen to the other five people in here. <laughs> okay, so who is sexier, Agatha or Wanda? I'm going Agatha. Agatha. That's a harder question. Because it's a classier name. I have no idea who that character is. I mean, I, I have to say Wanda, but I have to say Wanda, but it's harder than it should be. <laughs> you know no, it's that. not hard at all. Yeah. So, uh, is Wanda, Wanda's a redhead. Cause I'm going to assume that's Scarlet. Yes. Or that's Scarlet witch. Right. Yes. Okay. So boom points. Uh, and then <laughs> <laughs> Agatha is a brunette. Is that right? Yes. Correct. Well, yeah. I like yeah. brunettes more than like redheads. So I'll go with the brunette. <laughs> is that, I don't know how else to choose. I haven't seen the show. So. <laughs> You see the show, you'll understand why that's a strange question. Okay. So, <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Because Roger refuses to lead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone's got to. Yeah. Of course, I said I didn't want to lead because the guy with ADD will take it in weird places, and that's where you lead it to. So yep, maybe exactly. I should have. <laughs> well, we're talking about the hair color now. So excellent, poignant topic, and spoilers about so, sure. All right. All right. <laughs> so, so I will say from the aspect of what has made this a show that I really enjoy more than most of the MCU. So first off, I like the MCU. I'm not as wild about it as most people are. I think it's very good. And I think it has really, really good elements. I think overall, it's probably a little overrated in my opinion, which I know is like, a you know, blasphemy to say in the wrong crowd. But like, I do think that they have a lot more lows than people give them credit for and kind of just give them a pass on. I think WandaVision is right at the very top of everything the MCU has done. And I think the reason I would say that is just this, the production quality that they've done in, in it it is even like the acting has been fantastic, but if you look between the lines, I mean the, the the direction in each episode. So, so each episode kind of goes through a different era of like classic sitcom and the directing and the way that they do the camera angles to match up the, what was the popular camera angles from those times, the costuming, the set design, like, it is so flawless when they're doing, you know, the bewitch stuff, you would swear you were watching bewitched, like from every element possible, you would swear you just found it like a really good, well-made high def version of that show. Um, and so as much as it's getting a lot of love for the storyline and all the different twists and turns that it's taken and it should, 
Um, I think not enough appreciation has really been given to it on a creative level and, and from a production level. Yeah. Um, it's one of the best things I've ever seen on TV as far as production is concerned. It's one of the most impressive productions I've ever seen. I'll agree with so you. And out. this is my reason why. As much as I love the Marvel movies, they're great. But the one thing that bothers me about them, and I say that lightly because I love them, is that they pretty much almost all follow the basic same formula. They're very much a formula because it works. Yeah. Uh, it's a superhero movie formula. Ex- exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's a few yeah. divergent ones. Like I really loved Ant-Man because it was a much smaller story, uh, literally and figuratively. Um, I really liked that one because it was <laughs> a smaller story and it was more, a, re- a re- it was a relationship. It was a father-daughter movie more almost as much as it was a superhero movie. Now with WandaVision, yeah. the reason that, I love it so much is because it's pretty much thrown that entire formula away. And one of the reasons they can get away with it is because it is an episodic TV show. They can take their time to build the story, do it slowly, do it over so many episodes and make it much more of a mystery than a, you know, beat em up superhero type story, which I think is just, yeah. It's it's fresh. And it doesn't need the MCU. Yeah. It would be a great show. But it will tie into... It would the, be a great show even if it sure. wasn't in the MCU. But like it, if it was just an original show, it would be fantastic. Sure. But in the long run, we will see how it does tie into the MCU. But it exists in its own bubble. Oh, it's already in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah it exists in its own bubble perfectly. And really, what is the show about? It's all about, at this point, it's about Wanda's grief. Which, I mean, how many MCU movies? It's about psychology. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really a psychology right. is what's going on. Right. So is the base for this storyline just based on what the images I've seen online and the whole the thing that it's like, well, I, I won't speculate because I haven't seen it. But like, is it a is it basically a different version of House of M? Is that like what we're sort of doing? like Wanda yeah. wishes? Well, I mean, everybody- that's some of the speculation mm-hmm. and like we don't really... So, that's some of the speculation. No, at this point, I could say no. I'm just wondering if that's like not. not even like not even the exact same, obviously, because they did it for TV. So I understand like the whole like they did the generations of TV because it's done on TV kind of thing. Um, so I'm wondering if that was some of the inspirational change from that, because honestly, so from what I've heard, reason- it sounds like the base storyline is actually very similar to what led to House of M. Not House of M. I forget what the, the story Yeah, I mean, was. a little bit. I don't I don't think that's where they're going with it. I think that. To what Eddie's talking about, and, and the reason, like you say, why, why they did the TV and why they did the sitcoms and stuff, was really revealed this week's episode. Yeah. And, and and like he was saying, what this what this show is about is it's about grief, and it's about it's about the fact that Wanda has gone through immense trauma. She's lost everyone in her life at some point, and how do you cope with that when you have that basically mental snap of coping with that? And what happens when you're a you know yeah, insanely powered individual yeah. that has that sure. right? And so. It talks about how as a kid, you know, her family every week would watch American sitcoms and they would get together. And that was like how they learned English together and all that kind of stuff. And so when she thought about what's the world, I what's my perfect world I want to live in? Mm-hmm. That was what she created yeah. is and, an American sitcom. And they didn't and even need to show it. They did not even need to show that reveal in this episode about that's how she grew up because uh, it was already evident even before that. She's dealing with just a huge amount of grief and loss and trauma. What does she do? She retreats to what is considered a perfect world where all problems are solved in 30 minutes. 
So yeah, yeah. so that, that that does actually sound like a lot thematically yeah. what they dealt with with like either the pre House of M or the House of M stuff. I mean, that's what I was wondering is like if this was the thematic yeah, jump yeah. off of that, and then they basically like yes. updated it for TV. You know, is what it seems like yeah. to me. The like when I just saw I what I've seen, I'm just like, oh yeah, it's House the of M. The other reason sort of, that I really TV love it yeah. is the whole sitcom angle, because as someone who grew up in the '80s watching all the classic sitcoms. And then also watching the 60s and 70s sitcoms and reruns on TV after coming home from school, I get all of the references. I think much more than anybody else does, especially when they did the 80s episode, because I was we were talking about that early on, Eddie. Yeah, I was picking out stuff that nobody else picked out. Like so, so everyone's saying, oh, it's family ties. Yeah, it's family ties. But you see that that's full house. You see that that's growing pains. You see that that's this show. I mean, literally to the point where their couch uh, on once at one scene, you see it, their couch is the couch from family ties, but they have the one blue pillow on the edge exactly like they did in Growing Pains. There was literally all these tiny little details that called back to like a dozen 80 sitcoms and you see it in every episode. Everyone's, you have so much more attention to detail. Than <laughs> <I have. laughs> because, like I said, I was no. I don't. I don't notice that there's a throw pillow on my couch. <laughs> I was an only child, and I grew up watching sitcoms. <laughs> Literally, every sitcom. It, it, it's like they're ingrained in my brain at this point. So I, I notice all of that. Well, we were talking about this when it first released, and and people online were like, the first two episodes, like, oh, this was so slow and so. And they didn't like how different it was and they were complaining and everything because the first two episodes plays it really straight, just like straight sitcom. Like there's not there's little hints that weird stuff's going to happen, but it was very laugh track and like very it wasn't like what it's turned into towards the end when it really starts to unveil stuff. And um, Eddie and I were talking about it. We're like, man, we can tell which one of you guys grew up poor. You know, like the ones that grew up having to watch old syndicated sitcoms on TV when you were homesick. Those are the ones that are like, this show is amazing. And all you spoiled assholes with cable. You know, growing up, you're the ones who are complaining about this and whining the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. But I can definitely see that. I think I think a lot of like entertainment in general is just relatability. So, you know, like that's if you can relate to it because of how you grew up, like that's awesome. You know, like that's it's made for you, dude. Like, that's great. I, I love when I find things that are like made for me, you know, obviously it's like, wow. Even that Malcolm in the Middle episode was a tone perfect. I mean, um, yes. And I mean, they even picked probably one of the best, most memorable moments from the show to sh- stick in that last episode where they had the the porch collapse on Brian Cranston. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. It, it, yeah. I, they're they're just the, the people who are running the show are very on top of like what. My only complaint is they didn't have any character at any point in the Malcolm episode with extreme asthma. Like that had to like that they they had to have somebody like hit an inhaler. Like I'm a little annoyed yeah. that that didn't happen at some point. That was it. That scene feels like a missed opportunity to me. Yeah. So I think I mentioned well, that. This I mean, even I mean, I remember in Malcolm in the Middle, and like I think it's the first or second episode with Stevie. Where they what they bond over is Stevie's giant collection of Savage Dragon comics, and so like just like you know, I mean that just kind of even tied it back around full circle again. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. So that's where I think there's a lot of difference between the MCU movies as opposed to the TV shows, and why I think a lot of these characters work better as a TV series is you can take the time to tell a story and show all the small details. As opposed to, you know, hour and, and a half, two hour And that's why I'm so excited movie. for Baron Zemo being on the TV. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's why I think Zemo is going to be a perfect character for for the new series. Yeah. For that reason. Yeah. So I guess the, the big the big thing out there, if we're going to get spoiler, is do you guys think what's your guys' theory? Is Mephisto going to come into this thing by the end? I doubt it, but who knows? Yes. Yeah, I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I thought it was a little more concrete early on, but now with one episode left to go, uh, I haven't seen enough clues dropped that would show it They're pointing about to that drop way. It, drop it next thing. time on Dragon Ball Z on y'all. There's the whole story. <laughs> there's the whole song about it was Agatha right. all along. Um, if you guys are familiar with the comics, Agatha was never really a villain. So if they are taking, if they're going to be true to the comic version of Agatha, at least a little bit, then it would imply that she's not the villain and there's somebody else behind the scenes that's going to be revealed in the last episode. Whether that's Mephisto, Nightmare, or someone else completely. And in fact, in the uh, Bewitched episode, um, it, when they did the opening animation where they did the takeoff kind of homage of Bewitched, there's a scene where they show the helmet of Taskmaster, which I don't know if anybody caught. So I don't know I if that's not. implying that um, he at some point is going to show up. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah. Well, what about um, – didn't you tell us back that – back when they were shooting or starting to shoot Doctor Strange 2 that you had people coming in and grabbing all – from the studios, grabbing all your brother hoodoo? Yes. Uh, in fact, one person who was um, uh, working on the script – to some, to what extent I don't know. Pretty much confirmed to me that it is a character that's going to be in the film. Again, that was so, so long. Yeah, ago. that's been confirmed. That's, uh, Brother Voodoo has yeah. been confirmed for yeah. Doctor Strange too. I thought. Right. This was yeah. It's so exactly. I heard. I, I heard there's a like lot of speculation that the end of WandaVision will tie into Doctor Strange too. Yeah, it probably will. So I heard. I heard one piece of spe- so apparently Paul Bettany had given an interview couple weeks ago where he said there was one character left to be revealed um yeah that was actually i think about a week. it was after it was after the um agatha reveal right so um and he said that he there was one and then this week we saw the white vision reveal at the yeah. mid-credit scene but I don't and count so i'm character. wondering that's why i'm asking i'm wondering if that was who he was referring to and if we've got all the new characters or if we think there's going to be another one um coming after that I don't know, but have, I don't know. did you guys read or know what the storyline is for that original West Coast Avengers uh, vision quest? I have not. Okay. Um, I don't I have remember. Not. It's been a long time. Since yeah, I, I mean, you can Google it and yeah. get, get uh, yeah. the basic gist of it. But it implies that maybe uh, the white vision and Wanda's version of vision might be going head to head in the final episode. Oh yeah, I, I was kind of wondering actually. if that was gonna because <laughs> yeah. I I can't see that bot like it, it doesn't look that good on camera like it it doesn't look like what when you draw a white vision white vision looks amazing but when you what what I saw on the camera there I was not impressed with I'm very curious if they're going to take shot though yeah but I, I'm just curious I think I think there's a high probability we see Wanda's vision put into that vision body. Mm, that's how they bring him back. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and that's kind of sort of how the original based, Vision Quest storyline went. I you... heard a theory also based on the the Nexus um, advertisement in the Malcolm episode 
Um, so they're doing these little, they do one of the, I think the advertisements, by the way, we should talk about, cause it's one of the most brilliant parts of the whole show is they do like an ad in the middle of every episode. Mm-hmm. That's a period piece, like, like accurate advertisement. And so like the one in the Malcolm, which by the way, what does it say about this, um, last 20 years that the one in the, in the two thousands was an antidepressant, <laughs> you know, like that's, that, uh, probably, probably speaks as much as anything, but they had an antidepressant called Nexus. And so I heard a theory that 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 was hinting at the possibly the big baddie being lore um wanted to see what eddie's take on that because he probably knows more about this than most people i know i well i don't really have a take on it to be honest with you i'm kind of riding along on this one division wave enjoying it and trying not to speculate too much or read too much because i just want to have it all unfold the day of and enjoy it then i'm the kind of person who when the next big Marvel movie or superhero movie is coming out, I read nothing. I, I don't want to know anything. I don't want speculation. I don't want fan theories. I don't want to see leaks. I want to sit my butt down in that theater when it comes out. And I want it same. all to be a surprise then. So um, I, I'm If someone talks about stuff. announcing something I want, yeah. If someone talks about something that I, I'm interested in, I'm out. You I know, I'm like, I'm already going to go see it. So yeah. I don't need to know about it. I'm already yep. in like that ticket I'm, sold. Yep. I'm probably the only thing you do is unsell it to me. I'm probably the only one. I'm probably the oldest one here. So I come from the era of sitting down in the theater and watching empire strikes back and going, Oh my God, it's his dad and, and knowing nothing beforehand. So I like that. I want to be surprised. I don't want to know everything beforehand. Yeah, no, as a storyteller, I, I want to go along for the ride too. Yeah, yes. I, I actually, I, 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 I agree. I hate that they show you everything that's coming up in the next episode at the end of every TV show. Now, I actively try yeah. not to watch that. It's <laughs> trying to show you the whole movie. Don't give it away in order. You know, yeah, yeah, TV, yeah. Movie trailer, yeah. everything in order of what you're going to see yeah, in the right. Screen. Every major beat, like if you watch, there's plenty of times where I'll see a a preview for a movie just randomly. It'll come up Mm -hmm. and I'll go, well, great. I'm glad I don't have to go watch that now because I know what happened. I've got it all now. Thank you. I've seen all the good stuff. They spent $500 million in marketing in game. I'm like, you didn't have to spend a penny. I, I thought the same thing about Star Wars. I literally thought the same thing when they started re-releasing the new Star Wars movies. Literally, they had to do nothing but have a 10-second spot that, like, it just comes up and says Star Wars, yeah. you know, with the music playing and then goes with a date and the, and it goes away. And it, they would have – At least domestically. Bonkers. At, yeah. at least domestically. There are definitely probably markets they have to do more than that in. But, like, domestically, yeah, I think that it was, it's silly. Yeah, it was the perfect if they got more heat for that Episode Seven trailer than they – than frankly, even that movie deserved. And all they had to do was just like, like you said, just put Star Wars in a date. That's it. Yeah. That's Star all Wars, the, the episode, the date. Everyone will create in their mind way more hype around that. They're coming. Yeah. Everybody's coming. Just get the popcorn ready. Yes. Get the t- keep the seats warm. Everybody's coming in. No, yeah. We'll talk about Endgame. One of my, one of my big critiques of it is the way that they dusted everybody. You knew who, that they were all coming back. Oh yeah. Like even if you're just a casual person, like you're like, okay, well they're not getting rid of Spider-Man. Like we know that. So you knew they were coming back where if they would have just ended it on the snap, they would have just ended boom, either, either snap to black. And then the bat, the, the, the post credit scene being um, calling for captain Marvel and then watching Nick Fury get dusted. Mm. And, and then maybe like, or snap. And then you hear a voice of 
uh, or, or then the, the, you know, you hear a voice of him saying, I don't feel so good or something like that, but you don't know what happened, you know, no, and then had that. I so watched you don't people know break down what and happened. cry. I think it would have done so much better. No, yeah, but you could have had that no, at the start of the next I watched people movies. break down and cry in, 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 at the end of Infinity War in my theater. And it's just, I didn't know anybody who gave a crap. Everyone was like, yeah, they're coming back. Like, everybody. I'm not, I'm, I, I, I went opening day. I'm saying I watched people break, like, you know, they had that moment, and I don't know why you'd want to take that from him, Roger. Because <laughs> I'm all evil. <laughs> <laughs> no, and so I, I don't know. I put a, I mean, I put an Infinity War well above Endgame on my Marvel movie list, and I wouldn't change a thing about it, <laughs> honestly. But um, I think that we're going to wrap things up right there. Um, <laughs> we have a. Uh, taking up way too much of you guys' times. You guys have been awesome. Thank you for thank, thank you. you for coming on oh, and sticking out with us. I will uh, tell you, I will tell you, I was I, I am a little bit I kind of want to make Hoyt since he hasn't seen it. I kind of want to make him go watch the advertisement from the 90s episode with like the yogurt, the you guys know the one like <laughs> the that claymation one. Yeah. Yeah. Roger, now I, you're I kinda, becoming you're becoming I the house guest that him... made you watch Dragon Ball Z and anime. <laughs> I know. On our podcast. I, I just want. I, I, I just want to see his reaction. Hey, watch this out of I just order. want to see Let his me reaction. To you why <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> no, it wasn't weird as shit. I just okay. want to see like what the reaction to that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys. Make sure you check out. Yumi Spy Fatale, Baddie Royale, um, and we will have a link to the Kickstarter in the description. Go and uh, buy some copies. Uh, I know I will be. <laughs> Me too. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, All guys. Right. Appreciate you coming on. This show is part of the Geek Nerd Network. Geek Nerd Network. Find more shows like it at geeknerdnetwork.com. This is Jen. Somewhere in a movie studio corporate boardroom. Okay, pitch me something good, see? All right, there's a war. It's in the stars. Uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away? Yeah, it would never work. Next. All right, so there's an alcoholic tech billionaire, and he's captured by terrorists, builds himself a robot suit to escape, then goes on adventures saving the world with Norse gods and unfrozen World War II superhero. Boo. Next. All right, all right. This unknown boxer from Philly takes on the champ. Inspirational sports movie. Not woke enough. Okay, okay, okay. How about a podcast about movie franchises, how they get made, and whether the movies hold up or not? Go on. And we review the movies and talk about them? I can put that on a lunchbox, and we'll call it Kiss Your Franchise Goodbye. It's the best idea I ever had. I'm Mark. And I'm Brooke. And I'm Andy. Subscribe to Kiss Your Franchise Goodbye on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening now. Join us every week along with special guests to discuss some of our favorite movie franchises and why the world seems to revolve around them. Through November, we're discussing the films surrounding James Bond in a miniseries we're calling On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast. Not just Bond. Also, Bond-adjacent movies like Austin Powers, Top Secret, unofficial rogue Bond movies. Atomic Blonde, The Rock. And some of these will be exclusive to GNN Network subscribers. Join us with new episodes at the beginning of most weeks, barring any problems with our spy gear. You expect me to podcast? No, Bond. I expect you to... Kiss, kiss your, your franchise, franchise. Goodbye. goodbye.